you do a briefing with the military, you do a briefing with the Secret Service, and you'd get a code name for the day. And then when you'd fly, you'd use your code name and they'd have to move all air traffic away from you within a radius of so much. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you want to feel really important. Give somebody a code name and have the whole air traffic control system shut down and that'll make your head bigger. This is Up in the Air, a show about travel adventures, frequent flying, and the unique experiences we have along the way. I'm Ian Agurmas, and in this episode, you'll hear from Ken Rickey about flying President Bill Clinton, the future of aviation, and what it's like to run one of the largest private jet operations in the world. For many people, a private jet is about as tangible as the thought of one. But they've been the life's work, in one way or another, of my guest today, Ken Rickey. Whether it was that he used to fly them for Elton John, Richard Branson, or President Clinton, or that he's built and oversees more than a dozen companies that operate them, most notably FlexJet, or that the culmination of all that work eventually led to him owning a few of his own, Ken has established himself as one of the aviation industry's most prolific entrepreneurs. Despite the fact that he was awarded the Living Legends Lifetime Aviation Entrepreneur Award, which was in desperate need of a shorter title until they literally named the award after Ken, he doesn't think entrepreneurs have a place in the romance industry of aviation. More on that later. Despite his love for the industry and the passion with which he speaks about it today, he became interested in it under somewhat unusual circumstances. Let me get this straight. Your father was an undercover federal agent. He later became George Steinbrenner's accountant and Steinbrenner owned several air shows where you got summer jobs. And that's how you got interested in aviation. You got it. In fact, my job was to, I actually was a driver. So when like the Blue Angels would come in, I would drive them from the airport to their hotel. Years later, a cute story, years later, I had uh, the, the pleasure of uh, being involved in an organization that, Bo- that Bob Hoover was also a member of. And, I, and he pretended that he remembered me driving him around like 40 years before, but that was kind of him to <laughs> pretend he remembered me. Uh, that's funny. I'm just trying to paint a picture of your background, of, of course, but you enlisted in the Air Force ROTC program at Notre Dame, and then you get your pilot's license, of course. And then how do you start flying for high profile clients? What was the transition like? So first of all, you have to remember, I wasn't a, like a, a, I mean, piloting seemed fun to me, but the reality was uh, I joined the ROTC program at a time, you know, when, when it was right during the Vietnam War, no one wanted to be in the military. And so those scholarships were pretty easy to get. So my motivation was not really some early love of flying, although I did love to fly, but it was really about what was the most affordable way to get an education. And I, 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 I tell the story that my, I only saw my father cry mm. twice, once when his mother died and the second time when I told him I was going to be go, go become a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> and he was crying because he was, he was well, happy. He well, was concerned. I think he, I think he thought I deserved more than that. I, I think he, <laughs> I think being around pilots his whole life, I think he felt like they're, you know, they had this, this, uh, love of the sky and this, uh, this romance. And he felt that, uh, pilots tended to prioritize that over all else. And he wondered whether it was, uh, could be a balanced life. I, I ended up, um, going to law school. Uh, I, I, I started as a freight pilot and then I was a charter pilot, ultimately became a 727 flight engineer with Northwest Orient at the time. Mm-hmm. And so then I finally could tell my dad, look, I had a real job as a pilot. And then I got laid off. I got furloughed. <laughs> And uh, I went to law school, I think mostly just because, 
you know, I guess in, in case this piloting thing didn't work out, I wanted to have something to fall back on. But I think my dad would agree this piloting gig did work out okay. Yeah, it seems like it. Uh-huh. Among some of the most notable people you flew it was President Clinton and, and his family. Mm-hmm. And I read that the, the plane that you flew his campaign on was nicknamed Air Elvis. And uh, <laughs> I'm curious how it got that name. Well, a, a, a couple of things. First of all, there were the, the I did not fly Air Elvis. Um, oh. So I can't give you the, the story for that. Um, remember that my, my, I was flying, um, I was flying when you fly like concert tours and VIP programs, they would typically lease a plane and then hire a crew and they'd hire their crews for their, you know, for their confidence, you know, for their ability to keep their mouth quiet, to, you know, to yeah. be able to, to fly VIPs, to, you know, to stay out of people's way. And, and you get a reputation as someone that's reliable and that. So I had flown, you know, Barbara Streisand and Elton John, and somebody called me up and they said, I know you do a lot of these VIP tours, and, uh, but have you ever done a political campaign? Now, when you do these tours, you'd make more, you'd make about twice the monthly salary that you would make if you were just employed as a pilot. So it was good money, but it was like only four months of the year or three months yeah. of the year. They were short tours and that's why they paid you extra. Mm-hmm. So when someone calls you, you always want to know well, how long did they need the pilot for? Like how much, how long were you get employed for? Yeah. So they said, well, you do a political campaign. And I said, uh, sure, but how long is it for? And they said, it's right. like 13 months. And I said, <laughs> what's the guy running for? He said, well, he's running for president of the United States. I said, well, who is it? They said, it's the governor of Arkansas. I said, there's no chance the governor of Arkansas is going to need a plane for 13 months. No way this guy becomes president of the United States. And, but so he flew, what I flew him in a Gulfstream. And then when he went, got the nomination, then they had more people to carry around. And that's where Errol Elvis Secret came service. So the secret service. Then we had two air, we had, we actually had three airplanes at one time. But a lot of the times he preferred just to be on the smaller plane where he could get away from everybody. And yeah. he was notoriously late. I mean, I don't mean like 20 minutes. I mean like six hours. Like if he told you six o'clock departure, it could be midnight. Oh and so gosh. a lot of times the, remember the bigger planes operated 121 and, uh, you know, more crews and, you know, so I was, I, you know, I know I was, I knew his habits and I was always like the standby. So I'd come on duty like six hours after everybody else did. And so yeah. I was always the last man standing. And so a lot of times when he was running late, he'd be on my plane. Okay. That's, that's a really funny, um, you know, you know, what's, what's really, what's really cool though, is that once they become elected, right. Once mm-hmm. they're, once they're elected, but before they become, uh, inaugurated, they, they, they don't fly on air force one, obviously they continue mm-hmm. to fly on the aircraft they've been using. It's called the transition team and transition time. And you get paid differently. You get paid from the government as opposed to getting paid by the oh, yeah. campaign. Of course. And during that time could be the most fun flying I've ever done. Because every morning you'd get a briefing, you'd get a security briefing, you'd get a, you'd, wow. you you'd do a briefing with the military, you do a briefing with the secret service, and you'd get a code name for the day. And, mm-hmm. and then when you'd fly, you'd use your code name and they'd have to move all air traffic away from you within a radius of so much. Oh, that's pretty nice. It was, I'll tell you what, you want to feel really important. Give somebody a code name and have the whole <laughs> air traffic control system <laughs> shut down and that'll make your head bigger. Yeah, no kidding. Well, what what sort of things were they telling you in these briefings? I mean, um, I've, I'm sure you can't disclose everything, of course, but um, I, I, it probably it probably isn't anything that that people would find you know uh, unrealistic. But they would give you a threat assessment. 
You know, they okay, would say sure. Secret Service said, you know, we've had 14 threats, you know, today, yeah. uh, low threat day, <laughs> you know, okay. 21 threats today, a little higher uh, threat. Uh, they tell you, like, if there's any in the proximity of the airport, mm-hmm. uh, they would give you the briefing on how he's going to approach the plane. Obviously, they use a different you know, they wouldn't use the same approach every time we, yeah. we'd be at, we were down at national airport and we put the plane in a different place on the airport. So people couldn't predict mm. where he was going to go. So we'd brief right. about wh- where we're going to position the plane, how the approach was going to be, uh, how, when we, you know, what, what we would tell the ground controllers because they had to freeze all traffic right yep. when he was coming and they would want to know, they'd go through the timeline. Like we'd get like seven minutes to start from door closed to taxi, to get it through our checklist, to get wow. to the runway. So that, those are the kinds of briefings. It wasn't like they told me Russia's going to be on alert. We might have a nuclear attack from Russia. Today. It, was, <laughs> it was that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you basically reach like the pinnacle of excitement and flying, and then you transition out to the business side. How'd you decide to make the transition? When I came back to fly Clinton, I was transitioning into the business side at that time. I had been flying internationally. I lived in London for a while and flew Richard Branson. I had done mm-hmm. a couple of, uh, I, I was working mostly for, for a beverage company out of Toronto, which was how I met Branson, but we would go all over the world. And it was, um, I mean, a lot of times, a, a lot of time out of the world. I mean, one time, like 13 months, you know, away from home. In fact, there was a time in the early nineties where I didn't really, I had like a little cottage that when I got back to the States, I would go to, but really didn't mm-hmm. have any place else to hang out. Yeah. And, um, and I can remember in about, that's ah, probably 1991, I was in Madrid and it was about the sixth time I'd been to Madrid. And, you know, the first time you go to Madrid, it's pretty cool. By the time, it, by the time <laughs> everybody knows you in all the restaurants and you're getting tired of tacos, I kind yeah. of was feeling, you know, I, I didn't know I had, I had flown internationally 3,000 3, hours, maybe had 8,000 hours of flying. And I think it was yeah. like, I don't know what more I wanted to do in flying except apply to be an astronaut. And I was mm-hmm. too old, so that didn't work out. So I think um, I I decided to go to, to spend more time in the States and then work on the business. Right. So you were making the transition already at yeah. that point. You know, I had, a, um, so in, in these, in these international aircraft at the time I flew, we didn't have GPSs at the time and nor did hmm. we have, um, nor did we have credit cards. So we used to take off when you flew international, the real skill set was, uh, you know, and weather wasn't reported. So, you know, there were a lot of the communications that we so take for granted that came in in the late nineties, uh, you know, like yeah. GPS and so on weren't there. So the international skills you had to have was knowing people, kind of knowing how to spend money, uh, <laughs> you know, whether you, you had to be a really good weather forecaster because you'd get a map that was probably six, seven, you know, hours old and you'd have to read mm-hmm. a prog chart and that sort of thing. So it was a different skill set to, to, yeah. uh, to do all that at the time. Um, and I, and, and it was challenging and I enjoyed, I enjoyed it a lot, but I think, you know, there, there comes a time when that was, uh, I didn't know what other, I didn't know what more of my skills I, I was, I was going to uh, put to use. So yeah. I was, uh, uh, I, I had been, we had been flying a regular run with, with Branson from London uh, to Cape Town and hmm. flying through sub-Saharan Africa in those days was tremendously challenging. Uh, there's no air traffic control system. 
south of wow. the Sahara. So you, it's sea and avoid. You go to these high altitudes wow. and you, you broadcast in the blind. And if you hear somebody, huh. you, you have to talk to them. Mostly it was British Airways and you'd have to make yeah. sure you weren't at the same altitude and so on. So it yeah. was a different type of flying. But we're, we're, I can't remember where we were. I'm going to say it wasn't, it was maybe Morocco. It was out of, it was out of Northern Europe, but not that far. And the way you navigated was without GPS, you had a system called an INS, an inertial navigation system. And it wow. worked by plugging in where you started your flight. Mm-hmm. And it could measure how many feet you moved in north and then you moved a half a mile west and so on. Mm-hmm. And that's how you navigated internationally because there, were, when you go across water, there was no ground base. There was no ground based systems yeah. to follow. Yeah. And um, – and it was not very accurate on a on a ten hour flight. It could be five <laughs> miles off, so you'd be within five miles of wow. the airport. But you could not fly. You really couldn't navigate without one. And, and it broke in Morocco, and the plane oh was grounded. I had to get a spare sent in, and I remember getting the bill. It was like thirty two thousand dollars for the spare, and the repair was like twenty eight thousand dollars. And I was like, "What is in this little four inch by six inch <laughs> box that yeah. cost sixty thousand dollars to repair?" Yeah, and I ultimately started one of my first companies called Inertial Airline Services. And the idea was to, I hired some engineers and we created a testing system to certify mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and repair those INS systems. But basically the, the, the trick was, is it was a monopoly. It was owned by Delco at the time. And so mm-hmm. that's why it cost so much. And when we cracked <laughs> the monopoly it, is what it did. And I ended up selling that company in the late nineties, but that, that had been, that, I had started that company while I was still on the road. I Mm. I had about eight or nine people that were working there at the time. Cool. We're going to get into this a little bit more of the business that that you have started, the businesses that you currently work on. But, you know, you've been successful. Obviously, you fly around on a private jet. Your office has always been at an airport. To me personally, that sounds awesome to me as a podcaster. That's kind of like my worst nightmare from an audio quality standpoint, but that's pretty cool. (laughs) I wonder, though, what hardship has defined your character? You will probably uh, you'll you'll probably find this a a, a different answer. Um, a hardship for me has always been that I felt I was uh, given uh, a certain talent. I thought I was given a talent uh, that gave me an obligation to outperform, and so I'm constantly asking myself the question, am I really doing as much and as good with the talent I've been given? Mm. That's, that is both a blessing and a curse, right? Because it's, it becomes tough to, it becomes tough to be idle, but it also becomes tremendously challenging and uh, tremendously motivating. Yeah. Well, there's no critic like yourself. (laughs) Speaking of Richard Branson, he said, if you want to be a millionaire, Start with a billion dollars and then start an airline business. So much like Richard. I think you, Warren Buffett said that too. Yeah. Well, look at you guys. So you've started several and you have not met that fate. So what do you think you do differently than many other entrepreneurs that venture into the aviation space? I think I think that I, I don't think an entrepreneurs belong in aviation, uh, but let me define entrepreneur. I think hmm. that there are people that, that love businesses. And they and I think those are entrepreneurs of true entrepreneur can kind of watch, watch how 
watch how McDonald's, uh, you know, serves a cup of coffee and say, I can do that better. And they, and they find a way. So they're inventors, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, they, they find a way to dis they're disruptors. I don't think I'm, I, people always will call me an entrepreneur, but I think I'm just, I'm, I'm just a, an inch wide and a mile deep. I'm just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I have, uh, I had a passion for aviation. It could have been something else, but I've always loved it and always had a passion for it and yeah. just never fell out of love with it. And because of that, I was able to always, uh, stay focused on that area and you know in a, in a business like aviation where margins and profitability are minuscule mm -hmm. it's really sweating those details if you take your eye off the ball there's no way to make money in this industry yeah. um, and I never was I, I'm disciplined even though I love the industry I've done a, I've done a few things that I would say were purely just out of love but mm -hmm. i would say the majority of things i've done in, in the in the industry are out of our discipline and so for instance when we look at companies we're very you know uh, i'm very famous for my models that our managers used when they model out their businesses mm -hmm. we incentivize our management team on return on invested capital because it's a hugely capital intensive industry and if you just fall in love with aviation and you just want to, you know, spend a billion dollars to go in, into space, you can do that. That's, I don't yeah. know what the return on capital is. That's not a business. <laughs> that's, that's a hobby. And, and yeah. aviation is a romance industry. And if you're at a cocktail party, people will, and you're standing next to the yarn salesman, people will want to talk <laughs> about airplanes and not yarn. So, I mean, I think people, so people get enamored with the industry and, uh, like I said, we're, we're, we have managed to maintain discipline uh, in that industry, but also we've, we've, I have made the mistake of straying outside the industry a couple of times. It's never mm -hmm. worked well for me. And, <laughs> and so I've just, you know, uh, people always approach me, particularly now, Hey, I got, I got a great investment. Our, our, our fund has returned 18% over the Dow. And I go, you know what? I'm, I have a very balanced approach to investing. I have cash yeah. and I have aviation. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to pitch you my yarn business, I guess. <laughs> You're obviously very passionate about aviation. You have an amazing Instagram. You're very forward focused. And I have this segment on the show called Explain That Gram, where I go back through your Instagram and I pick a, a photo uh -huh. or, that I assume has a, an interesting story behind it. Yep. And so you've been posting a lot about future sort of aircraft, among them, the rise of supersonic business jets. Yes. There's a photo of you with John Travolta. And uh -huh. you said he's going to be piloting one of the first Arian S2 flights. Yes. So tell me what the story is behind that. And obviously so, John Travolta is, you know, he's a pilot. So yeah, the, the, <laughs> the, there's the long story and the short story. The long story is more interesting. The, okay. uh, the long story is that I met John almost 20 years ago. We were training at, to fly uh, uh, Gulfstream at, at one of the flight safety training facilities. Mm -hmm. And when you, um, uh, I think it was, uh, and at the time, you know, I had stories because I was flying celebrities. And when you fly celebrities a lot, you, you become not, you're not enamored. I mean, you, yes, you're enamored with them, but you're not, a, you're, you don't find them unapproachable. And mm -hmm. you just find what it is they like to talk about. And John was so easy because he loves to talk about airplanes, period, yeah. end of story. Yep. So fast forward then 15 years later, and he's every year been hosting the Living Legends event. Yep. And I meet him at the event and we reconnect instantly over that, 
over that conversation. And we talk about what the future of flying. And he says, well, the most fun thing I think I'll ever do in the rest of my flying life is, is I'd love to fly supersonic. He said, I've never been able to do that. He said, I tried a couple times on the Concorde to get it on the Concorde, but I could never get anybody's attention. And I hmm. said, John, I think we have to make that happen. And so when, when FlexJet ordered the supersonic, Mm-hmm. He agreed that he would do, be an ambassador for us. And so we we haven't really started into it because it's, you know, about three or four years before d- delivery yet. Yeah. So once we get closer to the delivery, we're going to use him uh, to help us. And and what I gave him in return for that was he's going to be our we're, we're going to put him through training and he's going to be our he's going to be our first pilot. Yeah. Save a little money that way. And I'm not having to pay him to to be the pilot. <laughs> I think the pandemic, you know, it's a negative topic. I don't like to to focus on it too much, but I think it was initially uh, it was tough on FlexJet, but it, it it's kind of come around, right? And it's provided an opportunity, a kind of rare opportunity for growth in the aviation sector. Tell me about some of the challenges that your team has faced meeting the the demands of the times, if you will. That's such a big topic, right? And it's and it's happening so fast in real time, but. Um, my my uh, my youngest son is on spring break when this when this happens, and of course, never to go back to never to go back to high school at that time. He was a senior in high school. Yeah. But my goal is, you know, uh, I don't know if you have children or not, but you know, I, when I can find time to be with them, I like to be in the moment with them. And mm-hmm. uh, the um, and so we're on spring break, and there was no being in the moment because for about a week, I thought this was the end of aviation as I knew it. Hmm. I've been through four recessions before this, but I'd never seen revenues drop 30% in two weeks. I mean, drop to 30%. So we were running at 30% of capacity. The one thing I do know from going through previous uh, recessions is that uh, you never you never act quick enough and you never act, act drastically enough. You only mm. kind of get one chance to do that. It's, it, it, it's, it, you don't want death by a thousand cuts. So we spent yep. about 10 days with the team, a couple, couple of 24-hour nights, 24-hour uh, yeah. days where we, yeah. where we never let up. And we came up with a plan how we would adjust, how we would adapt. Uh, how, how we could react. And we put that into place in about two weeks. But the key to that was I didn't want to lay anybody off. And yeah. my hope was because, you know, pilots, professionals, this is a very specific industry and rehiring those people, finding that skill yeah. set training is tough. So I went out and uh, part of our plan was to voluntarily ask everybody within the company, 2000 employees to take whatever amount voluntarily, just take whatever amount of pay they could afford until we figured out what, what this was about. Yeah. The company in, in a matter of 10 days voluntarily gave up $27 million of compensation. Wow. And so I, I, what I, I, I tell you this because it didn't really matter what happened in the pandemic. When that, when I was watching those numbers come in, I just knew we were going to do fine. That this company was in a position to do whatever it was going to take to survive. I didn't know what yeah. aviation was going to look like. But now, now move ahead four more weeks, right? In four more weeks, we're not at 30% or at 50% or 60%. But man, people are on a mission and we're performing like the company never performed before. Yeah. Within one month later, I returned everybody back to their pay because wow. we knew we were, you know, so it was a, it was phenomenal. It still touches me right now to tell the story because all uh, to think about all those people that had faith in you and confidence and trusted in you. Right. And then yeah. all of a sudden to, 
have to make that hard decision and ask people to put their lives in jeopardy and to find that you could reinstate them all six weeks later. It was just kind of one of the most joyful things I've ever been gotten able to do. So yeah, no kidding. In normal times, I mean, you have like 900 flight crew. Is that about right? Yes. Uh huh. Yep. So in, in normal times, they'll commute by, by commercial airlines, but you had to stop that, right? And set aside some of FlexJet's fleet to basically set up your own airline. Well, because, it, you know, early in the pandemic, no, you, nobody knew. And we couldn't ask pilots to come on duty, get come in contact with customers, go back and potentially infect their families. Yep. So we were trying to minimize the involvement. We could test them when they came on duty. We could control them on our own company planes. So yeah. that that bore, that's how we bore out. We bore um, Project Lift, which we still run today, 11 airplanes, and uh, that we focus just on bringing our own crews from their homes on duty. And it keeps them out of the airlines. It, it kept them safe. I, you know, I know their families were grateful. Um, yeah. And that wasn't, that wasn't a cost savings, believe me, but oh, yeah. it was a necessary, it was necessary. Our customers appreciated it. And I think most support, yeah. important, you know, our families appreciated it. Well, kind of speaking of of your customers, the fractional ownership model has allowed a lot more companies and people to get into the private aviation than were at least historically involved in the industry. And I I wonder if there's an evolution beyond the current business model that would let kind of another group of people in. And maybe you should explain how the fractional ownership model works. I'm sure you can do it better than me. Well, I think the easiest way to explain it is, is, you know, we're Augusta Country Club. You pay a fee to belong. uh, You pay a monthly due. And then you come out and play golf when you want to. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, a, it's basically a subscription model. It's not a, an airline model where you pay, well, you want to fly today and you call up and you see what airlines are available or a charter model where you, you know, you, you charter, you call today and say, what's the cost to charter a plane to go to Florida? These yeah. mo- people are paying to belong to the club. And that's, that's really what the fraction model is. And that's the flex jet model. Now we mm-hmm. have, you know, we operate our company in different storefronts, we call them, because we don't believe that that model, we don't believe everybody can afford, nor does everybody want to be at Augusta. Some people would find mm-hmm. it stuffy. Some people would say, I don't know how much golf I'm going to play. So there, are, we have other models. So if a sentient is a subscription uh, when mm-hmm. you buy 25 hours, you use them anytime you want within a, within I think a year. And, um, and that would be the equivalent of saying, I'm going to play golf 25 times this year. I don't know what course I'm going to play, but I'll, you know, when I'm ready to play, I'll see who has a good starting <laughs> time. Sure. Got and it. then, and then we have FX air, which is the on demand model. And that model is you get up in the morning and say, let's go play golf. What's the best, where can we get a tea time? Yeah. And so people travel in different ways. Now, what you're asking is, I think you were asking about, is there another evolution where that cost of that goes down? So you want to play golf. You want to get up in the morning and play golf at at half price. And the problem is yet uh, everybody who's thought about that, there's not a way we don't have the technology has to change. Nobody's overcharging for airplanes. There's not a way to, Mm -hmm. there's not a way to lower the cost, but you can see new technologies coming that are going to significantly lower the cost and that will broaden it. 
broaden the access. Now, now mm-hmm. people have tried to broaden the access, you know, through seat sharing and through, um, you know, uh, people have always flying. referred to it as the Uberization of aviation. Well, yeah. the problem is there's no such thing as the Uberization of aviation because unlike Uber, we don't have, you know, we don't have uh, parents that drop their kids off in the morning and then go fly <laughs> during the day and come back and pick their kids up in the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, so right. there, there, there's not that, that model doesn't work, but there are there are significant technologies coming that are going to really lower the price of, of of what flying costs, and then that will translate. Some people will still want a country club, even though it will call, cost less. They still want the exclusive experience experience of of that kind of membership. And some people will just want to call in the morning, and they'll find it cheaper. They'll, they'll find it a much cheaper flight to go, you know, see their parents. Well, let's talk about some of those emerging technologies. Mm-hmm. You've been posting about it a lot. Uh, and you're you're working on a SPAC right now focused on electric aviation, sustainable aviation. What what do you think the future is? So wow. I huge I question. Think, yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> let's let's take let's take high speed out down. of the let's take high speed out of the equation just for this for the electrification because uh, we've had supersonic flight before. The question is our new technology is gonna allow us to do it quieter, you know, more efficient, faster. Some so that's a that's an evolution of what we've done in the past. Mm-hmm. The the other part of the equation is a revolution and this is something we haven't done in the past. This electrification, hybrid propulsion, hydrogen propulsion, all of these things. I put them though you have to put them in three buckets. There is first of all there is urban mobility. Urban mm-hmm. mobility to me is the idea that we instead of taking an Uber Black to go from here to your house, uh I take a I take a I take a vehicle. Yeah. So these vehicles that are in urban mobility are meant to fly 20 miles. They're and mm. they're meant to go across town and they will be the they will be the latest ones to arrive for several reasons. One is we don't have landing places. Eleven. We don't have landing places everywhere. Yeah. Um, if I want to go from my house to your house, my neighbors are going to have something to say about that. The city is yeah. going to have ordinances are going to have something to say about that. So that's number one. Number two is that these vehicles are not meant to fly into the existing uh, IFR airspace. So mm. they're meant to they're meant to fly in the drone airspace, which the FAA is still trying to figure out. Now we've had a, it's a tricky you know, one. Yeah, yeah. So, so while we might be able to make those vehicles quick, they're going to be restricted at the start to, you know, the military and you know, in uh, you know, certain environments, and, and they'll come. But that's urban mobility. Okay. There's regional mobility. Regional mobility to me is, you know, how much it costs to build a subway or a train. And I'm not very well versed in that. Well, I think <laughs> isn't Musk built? He's trying to bore, like, isn't he trying yeah, to right. bore that thing? Boring so company. It's it's hugely expensive, a lot more expensive than building a vehicle. I did read there was like a billion dollars per mile for a tunnel, something crazy that, like that. I was going to quote that, but I didn't want to say the wrong thing. But I, that's okay. the number I would have told you. Okay. Um, but there are vehicles being developed that are meant to go 150, 200 nautical miles electrically. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so this is different. They're not carrying two people, you know, to come to your house or four people. These are vehicles that are meant to carry, you know, seven to ten people, and and, and hmm. it's really high speed rail. 
Okay. Yeah. And you, you, you know, you've seen them, you've seen like, you've seen people talk about um, Southern, you know, like I think Lilium's already put up a map of having South Florida and they would have, they go from West Palm beach to Orlando, to Naples, to Jacksonville. So that's regional mobility. And that will come, that will be easier because those vehicles are going to fly in existing IFR airspace and they're going to go from certified Verde ports and airports. So mm-hmm. the technology is all coming, but I think regional mobility comes first, then comes urban mobility. Mm-hmm. What's, what's probably here the soonest is, is hybrid propulsion. So one of the problems with all of these electrical vehicles, particularly when you get into regional mobility, is, is de-icing. Because mm-hmm. if you've ever been in an airplane and you've activated the de-icing systems, which run electrically, you can, there's a huge power draw. And oh. so these electric vehicles are have to make the decision. They have to make the uh, the trade off between range and de-icing capabilities. Oh wow, interesting! Uh, so they're going to have a challenge in in just their, in, in terms of their functionality. Okay. Yeah. So um, not that they won't solve it because battery technologies and storage technologies and recharging. You know, recharging is a huge problem if you're trying to run a regional. Or mobility company, right? Because yeah. you need to fly a thousand hours a year and the recharging has got to be 3000 hmm. hours a year. Yeah. So yeah. all of these are just, these are just all problems, hurdles that I think will accommodate. But the one that's ready to go is really hybrid propulsion because here we take an existing small engine, like an APU that comes out, you know, that burns 40, 50 gallons an hour uh-huh. and we use it to power electric engines. And now hmm. we we can demand power when we want. We get longer range. These vehicles will fly in the airspace that exists today. They look a lot more like airplanes than they do like yeah. helicopters. And they'll fly airport to airport over 700 miles. You know, they're kind of replaced the turboprop aircraft that we have today. So yeah. I see the market marching from hybrid to regional mobility to urban mobility. And somewhere in there shows up supersonic. So let's talk about supersonic. So FlexJet's the launch customer for for Arian for the yes. S2. Mm-hmm. So tell me why you're excited about that aircraft. Well, I, the real reason I'm excited is, I, and I really don't want my competitors to know this, but <laughs> the, the, the real advantage to this is I don't, this is going to be a $120 million aircraft, okay? Not mm-hmm. everybody, despite, I know manufacturers always think that everybody will buy one. It will be a trophy <laughs> property, don't get me wrong, and yeah, people will yeah. buy them as a trophy asset. But the reality is, if I'm going to come, if I'm going to come visit, if I'm going to go from Cleveland to New York, I'm not taking the supersonic. So right. it, it turns out to be a second, it, it becomes, you know, it's a sports car that I use on weekends. Yeah. Well, the perfect, the perfect, perfect solution for that is to buy a fraction of one. Why yep. buy a whole one and leave it in the garage when you just want to use it on the weekend? Yeah. So, so we think it's it's an ideal aircraft for the fractional market. We have already started to operate. We have a, a certain system. You know, there are certain corridors that they're going to be, be ideal for: New York, London, London, Dubai, uh, London, Moscow. And we've already started to set up corridors along there. And we anticipate that you will use that aircraft on these corridors. Remember. Not every airport is going to have the ground support systems. Not every airport is going to be able to support a supersonic aircraft. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a long aircraft, right? It needs it needs a larger ramp. It's a heavier aircraft. So uh, we think it flies in these special corridors and we think it's ideally suited as a fractional asset. You buy an eighth of it and you use it 100 hours a year and it's a lot of fun to use it for the ideal missions that you 
want. Yeah, that's really cool. So that it paints a nice picture for the next 20 years. But I wonder if you can speak to a few of the most notable ways private aviation has changed in the last 20 years. Well, I hit on one, right? Uh, GPS is certainly yeah. certainly one. Let me clarify a little bit. Yeah. You know, how have the use patterns changed? Got it. So uh, the, the, the number one thing that'll jump off the page at you in 20 years is cabin size. Hmm. If you were to look, if you because people came into this very cost oriented. And um, so if you looked at the amount of light jet flying that we did, you know, aircraft that are you know, 15,000 pounds and below, mm-hmm. those aircraft used to be 60, 70% of our flying. And then the mid would be another 30% and the large would be 10 or 15%. Mm-hmm. That is almost upside down now. I mean, ah. 60, 70% of our flying today is super midsize. So mm-hmm. uh, people really uh, are, are very, very cabin uh, conscious. They, people have cabin envy. I, and I, I don't mean, it's probably not cabin envy. I think it's just comfort. I think uh, yeah. the, the, the other thing I'll, t- I'll say is that, you know, flying's gotten, I, I go back and look like I, 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 um, I can remember my first proposal. I kept it. I was trying to sell someone a Citation 500. And I looked at the budget and the airplane was $495,000 and fuel, uh, jet fuel was 80 cents a gallon. And it was going to cost them like a hundred thousand dollars a year to operate the aircraft. Right now that, that, that mission today has turned into $2 million a year. So Hmm. certainly wealth has embraced, uh, flying and it's really, it's a lot, maybe it's a lot like society, right? We've really come into, you know, we've kind of eliminated the middle class and the middle class in aviation is, was really this light jet flyer. Mm -hmm. You have the guy who flies himself in a little airplane and then they, you know, you went to the light jet, but I think the corporations and, you know, the, the wealthier companies that once they decide to make the, to make, to make aviation or private travel part of their curriculum, they tend to do it in a larger and more comfortable and more versatile aircraft. Of course, you know, at the yeah. same time, we've gotten more international. So the second trend I would tell you in that is, you know, 30, 35% of our flights now are international. And wow. th- that was not, I mean, I was looking every, every, since we're, um, we really trying to grow international. We have about 25 long range aircraft now. Mm-hmm. And so every, every week when we do it, when I get my weekly reports, I just like to see the, the long range trips. I mean, I can't tell you, like we have, we have a company now that goes to Perth every, they go once a month to Perth from Los Angeles. Hmm. I mean, th- these long range missions, it is a ways. Yeah. And so what, what sort of trends are you seeing in what people want on the planes? I mean, what kind of amenities do you expect are going to be embraced? Well, the, the amenity, everything, you know, the, you know what the number one amenity is. You, if you thought about it for a second, right? It's high speed internet. Everybody. Oh, I was going to say a huge bed or something, but I guess the internet. <laughs> yeah. Well, you say large vodka bottle would be the second yeah. choice. <laughs> right. But, um, but uh, yeah. I think I think high speed internet connectability. I mean, the one of the one of the one of the downsides of Zoom now is everybody goes, "How come I can't Zoom from the plane?" Well, let me explain oh, it to you. Yeah. Do you understand the bandwidth that goes through there? Oh my gosh, yeah. that's a tricky so, one. Uh, that that's uh, that's a big demand. The other thing that's been in demand is um, is 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 quiet. You know, mm. as planes have gotten, as the ranges of if people if people's gonna if people are gonna sit on an eight hour flight. Noise level, cabin noise level is important, and, yeah. and video. 
So, you know, a large video system, you know, whether they're mm. plugging in their iPad or, or that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, we have a big our, entertainment most system. Of our, yeah. I don't know if you, if you, if you go on our website, you can see what we call our man caves. So we have created <laughs> in all our large cabin aircraft, kind of a, uh, we have a installation of a 42 inch TV in the globals and the, and the, um, and all of the G six fifties. And we kind of create a, 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 a media room section. It has a couch and a chair and a large TV, and you can park the kids back there or part of the part of your party can go back to watch a movie while parts can stay up. So that's what I've seen. Cool. What sort of process do you guys um, undertake as far as getting inspired, inspired to design these cabin interiors? And obviously commercial aviation, very, very different business, but you know, Emirates has a pretty incredible first class suite with a door that closes. Singapore Airlines has this, basically it's a room. And then Etihad has this two room suite known as the residence. I mean, do you, are you impressed by those products? Do you pull inspiration from them? I, uh, yes, but I would tell you that like, like we're, we're in a, in a partnership with Bentley now. I think we're, but, but actually our team has done such a good job. I think we've invented uh, we have a lot more people talking to us about what we're seeing in the airplanes. For instance, we have a, you know, the dining tables in most of these aircraft are four person dining tables. Um, but we've created a, a, a kibitzer where uh, we have a credenza that converts into extra seating. So you can see mm-hmm. more people at the dining table, the, the large media center that I've told you in the, in the back yeah. of the aircraft in the, I, I don't know if you've ever looked, uh, it, you know, Learjet just decided finally to, shut down after all these years yeah. but but their last aircraft that they made was called the liberty that was my design i told huh. them to take a lear 75 in fact we built 10 of them we built 10 lear 75s we took out two seats we created a an ottoman that dropped down from the wall we put a cabin door in it and we put a full-size sink in the back so we hmm. tried to make that lear 75 uh be something important, but you know, like you, I, I, I go to, I go to as many, uh, airplane, I go to as many airplane events as I can. I see what I can steal. I, you know, Mm -hmm. I like to see what the, what the new designs are that are coming out, but but we, we've really done more. And the other thing is that we have a, you know, we have a customer base that we can pull when we, yeah. Ah, great. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I suppose, more of a personal opinion question related to where, where culture is at right now, but you know, you can go to a number of FBOs and they'll give you a few hours with a private plane for like a photo shoot or whatever. And and I wonder what your thoughts are on that as it relates to, I guess, society's ideal of success. Uh, have you seen this? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. Mm-mm. Really? Okay. It's interesting. Yeah, so tell me. Um, there's a, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you which FBOs, but I think there's one in Miami, one in LA where basically, you know, if you're an influencer or whatever, you can pay oh, got a couple it. hundred bucks and go on this plane <laughs> on the tarmac pull the Lamborghini up and then you're posting the photo and you're like off to Ibiza and, but you're not. (laughs) And so I I wonder like what, what you think about the fact that that's where we're at. (laughs) (laughs) The the fact that that exists. Wow. I, well, it's not me. (laughs) Could I say it's not me? (laughs) Yeah, you can absolutely say it's not you. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I think it's, uh, it's okay. I get it. <laughs> you get it. <laughs> I, get, I get celebrity. Don't uh, yeah. believe me. Um, and I understand it. But I, I, I do think what, what, what was interesting is that in um, there was a whole group 
what happened, we talked about COVID a little bit earlier. What I saw happen after COVID uh, and why we had probably the best year ever in our history is there was a whole plethora of new clients that showed up to fly. And I'm like, well, who are Mm -hmm. these people? And why are like in our jet card business, we would sell 180 jet cards in the month of December. We sold Mm -hmm. 450 in this December. Wow. And you say, well, who who (laughs) are these extra people? Where are all these, why are all these people buying jet cards and Mm -hmm. who are they? And what you realize is there, there are a lot of wealthy people who treasure their frugality, who feel they mm-hmm. got wealthy because they knew how to control costs, who uh, didn't want their employees to think they were extravagant, uh, who didn't want their kids to grow up and, and you know, and, and be spoiled. And that for many reasons, they, even though they could afford any kind of plane they wanted in any environment, there was no impetus to do it. And all of a sudden, you know, not getting, not going to the hospital and being on a ventilator became good impetus. Yeah. And so this frugal group of very, very wealthy part of society showed up. And that's, that's a very interesting, uh, interesting segment. So that that was maybe come back to your real question, right? I, I I don't know. It's just, it's, it's 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 emblematic of, of society always, right? There's always a part of society that's understated and just, you know, doesn't need to be to showy and there's a part of society that does. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know whether it's changed at all. Sure. Well, let's, let's talk about this. this hopefully this will be a fun one for you. So, uh, commercial space travel. Are you excited uh-huh. about that? Oh yeah. I can't wait to go. How are you hoping to go? Are you hoping to be able to orbit the earth? Or you just <laughs> get above the Carmine line? Yeah. You're so funny because I, so many people don't even know the difference, but thank you for the Carmine line, right? That's the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, you know, I've been, uh, I had the pleasure of, of meeting uh, Jeff Bezos early in his, earlier on three or four years ago now and uh, have been able to, you know, be involved, uh, follow him. And a friend of mine runs, uh, runs Blue Origin now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, I would be a traitor if I did it with anybody but them, but at least <laughs> I will get above the Carmine line. All right. They're, they're, how many years out are they from I mean, theoretically? Well, I think they're, you know, he's kind of a, a, a you know, an, an under promise and over deliver guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they have hopes that they're within a year. Oh, that'd be very cool. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. I think at the end of this month, SpaceX is announcing a, a civilian crew that they're taking on, on a flight later this year, which is yeah. pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, Not to digress, but do you have any, do you, have you had any desire to go in space? I just like to see oh. how pe- people either, people either can't wait or they go no way. Yeah, it's been uh, absolutely cannot wait. It's been a goal of mine since I was probably ten years old to go you know, to space. Are you a pilot? I'm not a pilot. Okay, uh, uh-huh. I would like to get my pilot's license. It's another it. goal of mine. Uh-huh. But um, let's talk about the Lifetime Aviation Entrepreneur Award. Mm-hmm. You're one of the youngest people to to receive it, and you've got some incredible company on the list. Um, what did it mean to you to win that award? You know what? I I, I still am. Uh, it's still it's still kind of take. It, leaves me speechless. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, when I look at the other people on that list, I, I tend to go, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> right. And they named the award after you. <laughs> it took a kind of a step further, didn't they? I, well, that, that was, that was beyond. And I, and I actually know, know how that evolved. And uh, so I, cause I, 
my first inclination was, I'm not doing that. Yeah. But then I understood, you know, um, they've gotten a little, COVID's been tough on all of our charitable organizations, but, mm-hmm. uh, but they, they have a very, very, very focused mission on developing aviation talent and, and making people in love with aviation. And uh, even though this is the first time you and I are talking, you probably can guess that I love to talk. I like to talk about aviation. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can put me up in front of any group and, you know, my passion will come through. And so I I accept the idea that they did it because I could be a a great spokesman for our industry. Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome. Maybe maybe let me ask the question another way, which is what, what do you consider to be your biggest contribution to the world of aviation thus far, at least? I would, I would tell you that, uh, people, um, aviation is a romance industry. It, people fall in love with it. And uh, seldom do we get to hire an employee that doesn't say, my dream has been to be around airplanes. Mm-hmm. To be able to uh, fulfill those dreams, uh, to you know connect on a regular basis with these group of, this whole group of people, it's, I, I don't, I don't think it, uh, you know, there was a little bit of it in the military, but of course it's temporary and it's not, mm-hmm. it's not brought about by, by a, a dream. Uh, it's, it's brought about because they can, they know how to create an esprit de car and they know how to connect people. People yeah. are connected by their dreams here. And to be able to help them fulfill that is, uh, is the most rewarding thing I get to do. That's awesome. Well, at this part of the show, I typically ask people a lot of questions about their experiences with frequent flying. Now, for most people, <laughs> that means frequent commercial flying, but that's not super applicable to you. So I thought it would be interesting to talk to you instead about owning a plane. Okay. Because you have a, a G5, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Well, I, I have, I have, I'm a, we've evolved to a two airplane family, but that's fine. Okay. Okay. But, um, yeah, yeah. but you do have the G5. I do. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. And I mean, that's, you know, that's a spiffy airplane. So oh, yeah. what did it mean to you to, to buy that plane? I, I mean, as a person who loves aviation, really. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, it's like, I've talked to people who are like, have a family of eight kids, right? And they say, man, that first kid is like, it was, it's an amazing experience. There's nothing like it. Right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you go, but you got eight. He goes, yeah, I don't know how I got to the eighth one. It just kind of showed <laughs> up. Right. And yeah. that would be my analogy. I, I remember more about like the first plane I ever bought and fly and loved. And I can tell you, you know, like all about it, but it was the first plane I ever owned. Right. And it was yeah. mine and I would go shine the spinners on the weekend. Yeah, um, yeah. And then I don't know, somehow it just evolved, you know, then it was a, then it was a citation, then it became a, then it became a G4, then it became a G5, you know? So, um, but you might've known that I have this, this thing where I take off, I've taken all my children out of eighth grade and we've traveled. Yeah. I want to ask you about that. And, um, the last one, uh, you know, the youngest one always gets, gets everything. Uh, mm-hmm. but the, the last, the, the, the last one got to fly a lot more on a, on a, on a G5 than, than the <laughs> other ones did, let's just yeah. say. Right. And, um, I think 
you know, that was such an appreciation that, you know, the things we were able to do and the places we were able to go. And still to this day, I think nothing, you know, it's made the world so small. Uh, yeah. We, 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 we spend, we've been spending some summers in Italy, like mm-hmm. six years. And now all of a sudden we think nothing of it. Like, let's just, we're going to run over to Italy. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of crazy. I had a meeting of all things in COVID that was over in Germany and mm-hmm. I had to, I mean, you know, there's a lot of the places you can't check into a hotel because then you go into quarantine yeah. and I was able to, you know, leave at midnight, arrive that, you know, ride that afternoon at two in the afternoon, have a meeting from, you know, two to 10 o'clock at night, get back on the plane and come home. And I was home, I was home like at one in the morning and <laughs> you know, that's what that airplane allows you to do. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. And you're rated to, are you rated to fly it? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I can't imagine there are a lot of G5 owners that are also ready to fly their plane. <laughs> Probably true. What's the craziest piece of cargo you've ever dared to transport on, on your personal plane? Giant stand-up paddleboard, um, <laughs> giant tortoise. I don't know. I wish I could send you a picture. <laughs> I wish I could send you a picture. Um, I, the first time we decided to go spend five weeks in Italy, um, uh, my wife, love her dearly, was afraid that there would be one piece of clothing she would need that was uh, <laughs> not in the, that was not on the continent. And so, okay. I have a picture with what has to be uh, embarrassingly fifty or sixty pieces of luggage <laughs> in the cab. It, that in doesn't cab. fit in a baggage compartment, right? No, that doesn't no. fit in the baggage compartment. Yeah, you're gonna have to upgrade if you want that in the baggage compartment. <laughs> yeah. Um, how about what's the biggest first world problem you've had in, in regards to owning your own aircraft? <laughs> I think the biggest first world problem is you end up, is, is you end up, um, there's a maintenance problem and the plane can't fly. And you're like, yeah, you can't even imagine that. You can't even imagine that. Why are they doing this to me? <laughs> why are they making my, <laughs> why, why is my plane? Why me? Right. Yeah. Which is, which is crazy. Um, well, obviously any plane's going to have maintenance issues and that's why you'd, if you, have you know fractional ownership you're never subjected to those kind of exactly, exactly. Um, lapses in service eligibility if you could uh, if you could choose any aircraft as a personal private plane regardless of economics which which would you choose well i i have because i've always flown the gulf streams i'm just partial to them mm-hmm. and um and I, I i was i was telling you i do have a i do have a partner i have a second plane in a g650 and mm-hmm. that by far is my favorite airplane uh, oh, cool. We, uh, we use it more and more now. I think unless it's changed since maybe 2017, one of the last flights you took on a commercial airplane was Air Corio to visit North Korea. It was. It must have been a shocking contrast. What was that like? <laughs> so the, the, first of all, you know, uh, we could do a whole segment on North Korea because it, there are so many North Korean stories. But the first thing was, I, I mentioned to you that my, my, uh, my, this was during my, uh, my son's, my youngest son's eighth grade trip. And mm-hmm. I wasn't going to let him go everywhere uh, privately. You know, he mm-hmm. needed, to my recollection, he had never been on a commercial airline before that trip. You know, he just, <laughs> he got the luck of dad's flying. Yeah. You yeah. Know, and I, so we decide that we're going to go. And, and by the way, you know, we, 
we went business class or first class to Tokyo, which is how we got over mm-hmm. there. We went out of Washington and my son had never been on a commercial airline before. So we get on the plane, <laughs> you know, and, and we sit down and I can't, I don't know what he's going to say. Dad, I didn't know about, you know, I've never had to go through security. Why'd they make us wait? You know, why am I in my seat with my seatbelt on? Why can't I yep. go to the, why can't I have a drink? And he yep. looked at me and he goes, dad, there's people on this plane I don't know. And so he he didn't understand public transportation. Well, when we got in Air Coiro, now it, I've been there, you know, I've been there multiple times because I think that the the, the staples that I've brought in all my children to see, because these trips that I take with them, these, this isn't like, let's go hang out in London. This is to show them the parts of the world. And in most cases to show them the struggles that are in different parts of the world. And Mm -hmm. the two places I I let them all design their own trips. They all get to do, you know, we all make them kind of design where they want to go and they have to tell a story and research about it. But the two staples are Auschwitz and North Korea. Because there's no place you can take your children where they can experience a totalitarian regime. So yeah. the most amazing thing about Air Coiro is, you know, not that, you know, uh, you, you don't want to make eye contact with anybody on the plane. But <laughs> when, when you get off in Punyang, they take from you everything that's not allowed in the country. They have little lockers like gym lockers. And so huh. they'll go through and they'll take all books, all magazines, all published materials, all electronic devices. They take them and they put them in this little air coiro locker and they give you the key, which I'm sure like that's the only key. Don't yeah, die. right. Are you kidding oh, yeah. me? No copies, sir. No, <laughs> yeah, no, no copies. copies. Right. And uh, and you get to claim it on your way out of the country. And while if you huh. want to feel isolated, if you ever want to have a, a you know, not a body experience, that's it, man. Wow. That's I, a great there's story. hundreds of those. Stories. I mean, North Korea is, it's still, it's the most, I, I'm done. I, I think I've done all the trips I need to go there, but, <laughs> but the, I think my kids, you know, uh, they come back, they go into ninth grade and the teacher has them do a paper and they write a paper on, you know, my time in North Korea. Now, mm-hmm. I, you know, I know that the teachers reads that paper, so they thought they've all done well, but, but, um, it's, it's, it's a, a fascinating surreal place. Yeah. How did this tradition of, of, um, taking your kids out of eighth grade start? I think, you know, I think my love of flying, uh, my father, um, you, you mentioned him when we started the show uh, mm-hmm. and he, he spent, uh, uh, all of his, uh, discretionary dollars on travel. My mm-hmm. mom would want a couch. He would want to go to Rome. And that was, I can remember that was the ping pong match between my family, furniture or travel. That was, yeah. that was and, um, so I, I always enjoyed traveling with my dad uh, and my, both my parents. So I became a traveler because of him at an early age and just mm-hmm. enjoyed the always, obviously when I became a pilot, I just enjoyed go, places that getting to see, you know, I mean, I'm still a felon in Dar es Salaam. I'm, you know, cause <laughs> I violated their airspace. I mean, there's wow. an exp- there, traveling comes with so many experiences. Yeah. This kind of leads into my final question, which is what impact has travel had on you and what impact do you believe that it has on the world? I meet people who, um, who, who, you know, who don't like to travel, who are are very comfortable in their, in their narrow social circle. And I tend to feel sorry for them because I find life to be very experiential and, uh, it's what I enjoy the most. And what experience could you possibly get if you can't 
go all over the world and see these different experiences. I will travel to the day I die because there's still, on my list of places to go, there's still hundreds of places. We go to Italy every year and every year I go there, I find seven more things I forgot to go see when I was there. So I find it, uh, I find it stimulating. You know, they always say as you get older, you keep yourself your brain active. Traveling is both stimulating, it's experiential. Uh, I've made tremendous friends. I've also, not to make this anything political, but you would have to admit that the last four years have had a political flavor to them that we haven't experienced before. And to be able to go sit there, you know, at a cafe in Italy where they are so indifferent to that, <laughs> but but here with 24 hour news cycles, we are, it's hard to be indifferent to it. So it gives you such a perspective. That's Ken Ricky. You can find him on Instagram at Ken Ricky or just about anywhere other than a yarn convention. If you enjoyed the show or learned anything from it, it would be supremely awesome if you'd share it with someone who might find it interesting or rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Doing so helps other people find these episodes. As always, feel free to reach out on social with any questions or comments. Once again, I'm your host, Ian Grimis, wishing you smooth travels. Peace.